Welcome to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 69. I'm Liam, and I'm here to quickly introduce the first of two special episodes of the show. As we've mentioned in the last few episodes, we were very excited to be invited to the Victorian government's Realising the Potential Early Childhood Conference. Lisa took along some recording equipment and was given access to all the key speakers from the day. She had some really fantastic discussions with speakers including Anne Kennedy, Catherine Hyden, Anthony Saman and many more. She had so many great discussions in fact that we have enough for two episodes worth. So this week you'll be hearing Lisa's chats with Simon Kent from the Victorian Education Department, Joe Nuttall from ASEQA and the Australian Catholic University and consultant trainer, writer and researcher Anne Kennedy. Before we hear those discussions, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind all our listeners that A, we love you all, and B, if you want to support the show, there are two really great ways to do so. Firstly, leaving a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store really helps us out by improving our rankings and meaning more people can find and listen to the show. We're also shamelessly seeking approval, so it helps with that as well. If you have an eye device of any kind, just open the podcast app, search for The Early Education Show, and you can leave a review on the page. It's a quick and simple uh, way to help us out. The second way is to support us on Patreon. Patreon is a way for independent publishers like us to ask for voluntary financial support from people who really like what they do. Monthly payments can be as little as $1 a month, but that really adds up. Lisa, Leanne and I love doing the show, but we all do it in our spare time around all the other parts of our lives. Financial support means we can get better recording equipment, attend more conferences and get more interviews, and convince our sceptical families that this show really is worth locking ourselves away each week to record, edit and produce. We are so incredibly grateful to our current Patreon supporters. We wouldn't be able to do this every single week without you. If you can, please consider adding your support. All you need to do is go to earlyeducationshow.com and click support the show on the menu bar. Thank you. Thanks also to the Early Childhood Division of the Department of Education and Training, who not only put on this incredible conference last week for free for the Victorian education sector, but also supported Lisa to attend and chat with all the speakers. We're very grateful for their support to us and the early childhood sector. With that, let's go over to a quick introductory chat Lisa had with Anthony Saman before the conference kicked off. So I'm sitting here at the Realising the Potential Conference. There's 1,500 early childhood educators and policy people from all around Victoria uh, heading into this free forum. And of course I'm sitting with fellow New South Wales Welshman, Anthony Saman. How are you this morning, Anthony? I'm really excited. I'm really well. It's going to be a bonzer of a day and it's just great to see so many people here today in this amazing initiative by the Victorian Government who has an absolute commitment to quality. And it's a free conference, eh? Um, have you ever heard of something like this before? A free conference at an amazing place, not an RSL club, at the Convention Centre for 1,500 early childhood people. Do you know why the Victorian Government decided to do this? Well, I think when you land in Victoria and you look at their number plate and it says the education state, you know, it's not... It kind of says it everything. Says it says something to you about an absolute commitment and that was really solidified last night at a welcome event um, for speakers etc where the, just the messaging is this is important for children and and so I mean I could just imagine why they would want to do this. Yeah. Well I'm looking forward to hearing you talk today. What are you talking about? Um, uh, my presentation today is about the relational space of leadership. So 
um, the role huh? the, huh? um, the role leaders play in creating spaces of um, relationships so they can improve quality because my main argument is if you can't lead with influence if you can't connect with followers then you're not going to realize quality so when you say lead with influence you mean of other staff members uh, yeah and and yourself, actually. I mean, you know, as we know, it's really easy to kind of point to others and tell them what to do. So I'll talk about the nexus between research and practice, um, our commitment to evolving practice, and how we create spaces of, of collaboration between leaders and their followers. So there's some common language and common goals. Okay, sounds great. I know I've got you on the schedule to talk to you a bit after your session, so I look forward to doing that. Thanks for talking to the Early Education Show. Thanks, Lisa, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you later on. So I'm here with Simon Kent, who's the Deputy, Deputy Secretary, Policy Reform Group and Strategy and Performance Group. Gee, they give bureaucrats big titles, yep. don't they? Yep. I've got two at, two at once. At the moment, <laughs> so. What does it actually mean in reality? What are you doing and what's your connection with early education? So I've got uh, what I think is probably the best job in, uh, in Victoria, which is uh, across the whole of the... Uh, education and training portfolio, I look at uh, future reform opportunities, be it early childhood schools or vocational education. Um, so uh, we're looking at best practice around the world, looking at what we're doing here in Victoria and constantly thinking about what it is we need to do next in order to make sure that we've got the best learning and development system uh, anywhere in the world. So how come you hit on early education as such an important point? Uh, the short answer is the evidence. Um, so uh, it's an area that I've... Uh, so bef before I worked in education and training, I worked in uh, the Premier's department uh, going back into the, the mid-2000s. And uh, really, I struck on it there as an issue and uh, an area of passion uh, and was fortunate enough to work on some of the COAG reforms around universal access and uh, the national quality agenda. Well, back in the good old days, Yep, eh? yep. So, uh, so I really had a strong passion for it uh, from there. And the evidence, uh, as we're seeing today at the conference, uh, is just so overwhelming. And it, uh, the sense that the, the moment is here when... Uh, there is a momentum building and a recognition of that evidence and a coming together of government, uh, the sector, the uh, community sector, not-for-profit, um, philanthropic and uh, increasingly business as well, recognising the importance and, uh, and looking to lift quality and access and equity uh, across early years and to increasingly build a system across the uh, the great work that's done in, in a range of different services. Okay, so let's go back to the conference. Other than to make the rest of the country wild with jealousy, why has Victoria decided to run a free conference for 1,500 people, all from the early education sector, about early education like that's just nuts isn't it and how um, much is it costing you <laughs> it's 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 worth every cent to get people together uh and uh and as i say 
leverage that momentum that's there. I think there's probably two really uh, key reasons. One is uh, it is part of our reform plan. So we can think about a reform plan as a document that we launch and that's it, or you can think about a reform plan as something that we build together and develop over time. So the government has, has said this is the direction we want to go in, this is how we want to build it, uh, and this is part of continuing and deepening that conversation with the sector about how we um, build a bigger, stronger, better early years uh, system. So that's, that's one element. The other is, um, unlike a lot of uh, areas of, uh, of government activity, it's a very uh, diffuse and dispersed mm -hmm. sector. And we really uh, see a great role for government there in bringing people together. Bringing people together uh, who are in like services, so getting uh, uh, educators together to learn from educators, uh, but also getting uh, the real diversity of services, so bringing maternal and child health and parenting uh, supported play groups, all of the, the many, uh, many actors, many players in early years together to uh, work together more strongly, more focused around the needs of, of children, so creating that that's space. That's brilliant. We do all exist in separate silos and I think I've met more maternal health nurse people here than I've met anywhere before. So. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and, and everyone's just so busy doing their thing uh, yeah. with the best intention, with the knowledge, what you need is space. You need the time and the space to get together and to meet and to form those relationships yeah. Form those, uh, form that trust, and have that knowledge and the shared language. Often you see it uh, often that uh, just there are these these barriers to uh, easily working together if you don't have the shared understanding, the shared language, the shared knowledge. Even if you've got the shared intent and the shared passion. Um, yeah. So how we bring that and and really facilitate uh, a much more. Uh, organically integrated uh, early childhood sector across all of the services that support children and their families. One of the things I notice both in your um, actual plan and in the conference a bit is that you use the word early education almost exclusively. You're not using that care, um, that care component. And when, as an outsider to Victoria, I think about your system, I think about you having a very strong kindergarten um, section, and very strong advocates for um, the universal access funding, etc. Do you see the care component as important? Do you see long day care, centre-based daycares, as they're called from July 2nd, as having an important role? Um, we starting from the position that the the most important thing is the the learning and development of children and the uh, the quality of the relationship that they have with uh, the adult and the other children and uh, so you get care when you have those things care is absolutely important uh, in order to facilitate workforce participation you can uh, we come from the view that you can have both um, uh, in the same place at the same time if you've got quality interactions uh, between the, uh, the, the adult and the child. Teacher and child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so coming at it from a, a child-centred perspective, uh, 
that's the most important thing in, and that's really at the, the heart of the national quality agenda and the, the approach to regulations is that it's about the, the quality and the skill and the qualifications of the workforce and in I order th to be able somehow to Somehow we seem to have lost that, haven't we? Yeah? Like, I remember when I initially looked at the NQF, it was great. They get that you've got to have better qualified and more staff. And that was, okay, we know through eons of research that they're the things that really matter, but we seem to have gone off that track with the loss of professional development funding from the Commonwealth. Is that, like, are you doing in Victoria your own professional development outside of things like these conferences? So what we're doing, uh, we're supporting uh, into two, two really important things in the reform plan uh, around quality. The first is uh, quality support for those services um, based on uh, their their uh, quality ratings. So where there's additional support needed, we're going in and, and helping there. Ouch. Did you hear that, the rest of Australia? They're actually helping the services that are working towards. Ouch. And, and importantly, uh, the, the uh, school readiness funding, uh, the equity funding, uh, is really uh, a, a quality measure. Um, yeah. That's additional uh, funding, really very heavily based on, uh, in, in, or very uh, aligned in its thinking to equity funding in schools, is to say, uh, previously... Those children that need it must should get additional assistance to have early education. What a novel idea. <laughs> yep. So, so additional funding to identify and support those needs and that that can be used. The, the, um, there'll be some of that funding that's used for individualised support, um, speech pathology... Uh, th those kinds of things, uh, but also systemic support for services to be able to raise the quality of the of the learning environment for the children there, because they they need an even better learning environment. That's certainly uh, what E for Kids has underlined for us. Uh, yeah, it was just. What, so aren't completely. you also doing some scholar teacher scholarships? Yeah, we are. So we've got uh, in uh, in this year's budget. There's also uh, workforce uh, initiatives there to support uh, further development. And do you have a holistic plan for the workforce development, or is it still a bit piecemeal? Uh, look, it's it's. I don't think I'd say piecemeal. I'd say uh, it's. Of course it's emerging. not. You're a bureaucrat. It's, it's emerging. Uh, there's a, a strong commitment there that there is a, a role for government in ensuring this. It's uh, although it's not a workforce that's employed uh, by government. I know that's yep. a, a discussion that you've been having on the show uh, yeah. previously about the, the absence of uh, a workforce plan uh, nationally or, or in, uh, in the states because they're unlike in government schools, for example, they're employed by the government. Yeah. So there is a different role there, but there is absolutely a role for government in saying this is an important uh, service that government uh, funds and regulates, and we need to make sure that there is uh, workforce supply there uh, to be able to meet that uh, and to meet it at a at a high level and, of quality. And a quality of workforce supply as well. Yeah. I think we're hearing more and more people saying... We're just not getting the same people into the sector that we used to, and whether that is because of you know, wages and status and standing, or whether it's because our training institutions are letting us down a bit. 
Okay, yeah. that's and, and, scary. And, and part of the, uh, a conference, a forum like this one, is to promote the sector and its importance publicly uh, to get out there the criticality of uh, early education and to reinforce to people uh, this is uh, a great place to work. It's incredibly rewarding. Uh, and I know uh, when I get out into services, I find it just so uh, uplifting, that, that experience, and uh, it's one of the things uh, uh, I that really get you envy. out of bed in the morning. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I envy the uh, the as a non-educator uh, to see the the kind of the immediate reward and response that you get in in seeing in uh, changing nappies. Yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> in, in, in seeing oh, kids learn and grow and the lights go yep. on uh, is just uh, such a, a fantastic uh, thing, and it does inspire me and, and inspires so many of my as colleagues. Well, isn't yeah. It, to be able to do that for children. Um, what would you say to people around the rest of Australia as to why they should come and work in Victoria in the early years? Well, clearly Victoria is a, a great place to, to live and work. We've, uh, we've got a great, um, a great sector already uh, and we're really committed to making it better, um, both within each of the individual uh, service types and getting that linkage across services to build a system that works for the whole child and, uh, and for families and recognises their needs across uh, health and uh, development and learning. Uh, they're, they're very hard to unpick in the early years, uh, so uh, building that system uh, and, uh, and being part of a, a really exciting uh, reform and change agenda that we've got uh, got going on here. It certainly is an exciting change agenda. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting the Early Education Show to be part of the conference. That's Simon Kent from the Department of Education in Victoria. Thanks for having us and thanks for coming. <laughs> thank you. Hi everyone. Now I'm back here with uh, J J Joss. Is it Joss? It's Joss. Short for Jocelyn. <laughs> Short for Jocelyn Nuttall um, from the ACU. And I'm about to do a very dangerous thing. I'm going to ask an academic to tell us about her research. I should warn her that she's only got 10 minutes. Go. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Well, a lot of people think of me as an early childhood academic and I've worked in early childhood. I uh, sit on the Minister's Early Childhood Advisory Committee. I'm, uh, I'm on the ASEQA board. But actually my great passion in early childhood education is for the learning of the grown-ups. That's what I like to research. I really care about the women, and it is predominantly women, working in the early childhood sector, uh, how they learn, how they grow, how they develop, their well-being, the sustainability of their work, and ultimately the relationship between that work and the joy and flourishing of the children with whom they work. And so that's what my research focuses on at the moment, mainly around the work of educational leaders. And so what is it about educational leaders that a, you think is so important, like I take it you're a very big fan of the role, um, and B, what are they not getting that they need? In terms of why focus on educational leaders, it's a very big shift 
for this the sector, Lisa, that historically professional development happened outside the centre. You went off to a uni, you went, uh, you did a course, you came to a fantastic event like today's department forum and that was part of your professional development. But with the creation of the educational leader role, which is mandatory under the regulations, there's now an adult responsible in every centre or service for fostering the learning of the other adults in the service. And that's quite a profound shift because, of course, we're all about the learning of the children. That's our background. That's the education that we've had. And most educational leaders who find themselves in the role don't have a lot of experience in thinking about adult learning and professional development and and the kinds of approaches that they might use in uh, their early childhood service. So what do they do? They turn to approaches that they know about from every day, perhaps approaches that they've experienced in the past, and often those approaches are really highly individualised. So things like coaching, mentoring, these approaches work, we know they're effective, but the question I'm raising, to move to your second question, Lisa, is are these sustainable approaches for a sector that has staff turnover, really diverse quals, really diverse cultural backgrounds amongst staff? How do we actually develop leadership methodologies that can succeed in lifting quality despite those, those limitations of the sector. And I think when I heard you raise that in the plenary session we've just been in, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that raised in the sector in quite that way. Well, and I'm you've excited got, to hear that. <laughs> you've got a novel um, answer to it. So can you give us the answer? Well, I'm not sure I have the answer yet yeah. because, <laughs> as you said, I'm a researcher. Where um, oh, they always put these codes. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm really excited to have um, funding from the Australian Research Council and to be working with my. They colleagues. even feel that they have to advertise their funding Absolutely. source. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> we have to honour the people who fund our work. Um, Isn't that the taxpayers? <laughs> Ultimately, it's the taxpayers. Absolutely, um, and the the colleagues that I'm working with, Linda Henderson at Monash and Liz Wood at the University of Sheffield, I, I have mandatory to, plug for the colleagues. I have to give a shout out to the colleagues because they're just so good. But back to the question. But back to the <laughs> what was the question, Lisa? <laughs> I've got a couple of um, responses to to that. Uh, and this is based on you know, a lot of pilot work that we've done before yeah. the, the present grant. One of them is about thinking about practice. Rather than focusing on trying to change other people, man, it's hard to change other adults. Okay. And so um, by focusing on the practice and understanding that practices and people change together, they're not separate. But by collectively in your service or centre, focusing on the practice and saying, what is it that we want to do better around here? And having that common goal in the work we call it a common object. We know that we all want the same outcomes for children and families. So that's what creates the coherence in the team, not the focusing on the relationships with each other. That relationships are incredibly important in the early childhood sector. They're the foundation of our curriculum and they're the foundation of our work with each other. But they're fa the foundation for something, which is for the practices that uh, enhance the lives and well-being of each other, 
of the children and of the families. So that's probably, that would be my top answer to your question actually, mm. Lisa. Focus on practices rather than people, understanding that people and practices develop together. As I said, I think that's a novel one. Good. Okay, what about, um, uh, what about the fact that you're asking a lot of people who in most situations, well, I'm sorry, I'm speaking from New South Wales understanding here, but most educational it's leaders... Right. We, are, South... we understand other countries, <laughs> yeah. it's okay. New South Wales don't get any additional income from being the educational leader, and often they don't get additional time off the floor, or if they do, it's limited, and often they don't get any particularly strong professional development or learning, learning in themselves about how to do the role. So how does that work? Well, my first response based on the research that we've done over the last five or six years, uh, the three points you make, my answers would be yes, yes and yes. Um, we've also seen that phenomenon. And I'd actually add a fourth one, Lisa, which is that so far, working across several states and territories, I've only met one person who actually applied for the role. Most people find themselves either falling into it, being tapped on the shoulder, yep. somebody saying, well, you do it anyway, or in a kindergarten, they may be the only qualified teacher. I know that's not the case <laughs> in New South Wales, but... Yeah, in New South Wales, <laughs> we're doing something Two right. Teachers. <laughs> um, but... Uh, and so there are people who are effectively starting on the back foot. On the front foot, what I would say is that we're also finding that a lot of these people were doing the work anyway. Now, that doesn't make it right that the work intensifies and they're not paid more and that that status isn't recognised. But these are people who are really passionate about their own learning and that they're passionate about the learning of other people for the good of the children and families. And so um, it's been really interesting to say to people, well, if you're not getting any advantage um, personally from doing the role, why are, why, why are you doing it? And I think that that kind of investment, there's a long history of that kind of um, unrewarded investment in the early childhood sector. I think... Um, and again, as I say, it's early in the research, but I think we're going to find that the, ho the whole issue of intensification under the reform process is part of the kind of infrastructure for the sector as a whole that we're really going to have to come to grips with. Mm. Um, so I don't think that answers your question. If anything, it just adds more to the phenomenon that, that you're talking about. One of the things that... I'm scared about is with the demise of funded professional development from the Commonwealth Government, we're probably okay with the educational leaders that we've got, but what happens in the future when they move on? How is the new set going to learn what, what their role is, let alone how to do it? Yeah, look, I, I, I agree completely, Lisa, and I think uh, that's why in my presentation today I touched on those two final concepts, appropriateness, which is about the kinds of issues I've been talking about uh, with you all, all already in this lovely chat. <laughs> um, so appropriateness in relation to uh, leadership that works for the sector, but also sustainability. And in the project, we're thinking about sustainability across a number of levels. So sustainability for the individual leader, 
sustainability for the team, for the service, but ultimately we're talking about sustainability to the, for the profession and I think that that's what your question goes to, that um, as long as we're relying on a kind of backwards logic of the most highly qualified people being the least experienced because they're just coming out of universities and, and TAFE, um, how do we grow leaders? And we know from other research that's been done, um, wonderful research that's been done at, at QUT and Charles Sturt University through their ARC work, that there are not just a group of qualified people who are looking at their options in terms of staying or leaving the sector, but there's a group of very experienced people who've been in the sector for a long time. They might not have the most stellar qualifications in the formal sense, but they are really experienced leaders. They're experienced in context. What kinds of structures are we using and practices are we using to develop those up and coming leaders? And one of the things that we're emphasising in our work is that it's not so much the role of leaders to influence individuals, of course, that's part of it. It's their role to create cultures. It's their role to create cultures that are oriented towards the learning of the adults as well as the learning of the children, because where the learning of the adults flourish, I'd put money on it, the learning of the children will flourish. <laughs> I think everyone would really. And, and that kind of learning, what we're calling learning rich leadership, yeah. is the kind of context that creates a platform for new leaders to emerge. And so I'm hoping, it's a long-term prospect, yeah. but I'm hoping that that will be part of the phenomenon that we can track. Okay, just one very quick question because we're running out of time. But what I'd, uh, I was interested in your comment that the more codified our standards become, um, that it can become the death of innovation. Can you talk a bit about that and what you think the antidote to that problem is? One of the research partners, as I've mentioned, is Liz Wood, who's, who's a professor at the University of Sheffield. We're actively comparing the English, not the UK, but the English context with the Australian context because that's what uh, has been seen in some research in England, that they have a very intensive standards and inspection regime in early childhood, far more than, yeah, than yep. we experience yeah, under the NQS. Course, yep. And uh, it, it can make people fearful. Yep. And in services that are identified as what we would call uh, working towards or needing um, significant improvement, there's a real danger of that fear constraining um, the aspirations and the activities of the, uh, the leaders and indeed of the teams in those yep. settings. And so I think it's about finding the balance and it's about rewarding innovation. And I think that the excellent rating is one of the ways that we do that in our standards um, structure, that centres that innovate, develop other services, that are lighthouses for practice can be recognised under our standards system. Okay, great. Now, can I just ask one tiny thing? Did I hear you say when you came in that you're a fan of the podcast? <laughs> oh, Lisa, smooth as silk, <laughs> transparent as polyester. I'm absolutely a fan of the podcast and I follow your Twitter feed every day. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and cash much. in an envelope unmarked will be most welcome. I don't think we need to go that far, but thank you for joining the Early Education Show. You're welcome. Mm -hmm.
Hi, and now we're back with yet another wonderful presenter from the Realising the Potential Forum. This is Dr Anne Kennedy, and I'm very excited to have you on the pod podcast. Once again, I can't believe that you're one of the people that we've not yet had on the podcast. How are you? I'm well, and I'm enjoying the forum. It's fantastic opportunity today to have so many people gathered together from across the sector it's quite exciting I think it is quite incredible mm. isn't it yeah. is it is it is the first time that the Victorian government's done something like this isn't it uh, we had a very big forum when Jack Shonkoff was here but that's a long time ago yeah so we had big conferences and things but this, but is, this not is not just a debt sponsored yeah talking about policy and practice in this way yeah so your session was talking about a particular part of practice mm -hmm. about literature, uh, language and um, literacy. Talk to, I missed your session because I was in another session, so tell me what you said. Well, we were talking about language development, three panellists. Um, I was taking a more practical perspective. The other panellists were researchers. Oh, unusual for unusual. you. <laughs> uh, and we would, uh, I think, but we had the same message and I yep. think uh, Jill Callister had the same message in her plenary talk just now, uh, that language's development and learning is critical to all aspects of children's development and their wellbeing. And what we do in early childhood just lays the foundation for success at school, clearly. It, it's funny, you know, I had never thought of it as quite the way Jill explained it then as without language we don't have you know the, the basis for conceptual thought and mm -hmm. just the absolute mm -hmm. um, uh, importance of it especially for children who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds mm -hmm. like you hear all the stats you know I think they're a bit discounted now about word numbers and mm -hmm. stuff that children have heard and we know that yeah, literacy and, and language acquisition is important, but a few of us, you know, remember I'm not an early childhood educator, would probably say it's no more important than mathematical or STEM concepts, but you're in fact saying... It's foundational. It's foundational. It's the, it's the foundational yeah. skill. Um, that capacity for symbolic thought to be able to make something stand for something else, which is why we have so much emphasis on play... Is, is kind of there too, and so the two are so linked. Um, when a child pretends that a pencil is a sword or a stick is a sword, they're, sim they're using symbolic thinking. And that's those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those experiences in childhood set them up then for all the abstract work that will happen in school um, around maths, numeracy, engineering, science, technology. Etc. Do you think that um, educators, like teach at school teachers, understand that? I think, in, hopefully, in Victoria, there's increasing respect for the work we do in early childhood. That we do lay those foundations, and that what we do makes such a difference to what they will do. Um, but I, I'm not sure that everyone gets that message yet. But we've certainly worked hard on that in Victoria, and I think, unlike other states. I do quite a bit of professional development and it's not uncommon for me to have in the room MCH nurses, early intervention people, uh, school teachers, kindergarten teachers, childcare educators, OSH workers and I don't think that oh, would happen that's, anywhere that's else. That's very unusual for New South Wales, we yeah, wouldn't get that. I don't think yeah. so. So that, that, that's the kind of system thinking 
that I think we've been hearing about today, that if we get that sort of notion that we are a system, not a whole lot of fragmented separate services, that we can make a significant difference then. What do you think, you know, like if you could have a magic wand and a bucket of money mm. to spend on um, early literacy, what would you early spend it on? Language and literacy. I think the capacity of the sector, of the workforce. Right. Because if the workforce understands language development, uh, contemporary thinking and its importance and how it affects behaviour and how it how children learning languages, English as an additional language, or there's a lot of complex professional knowledge you'd need in your toolkit in order to actually be effective language teacher. And do you think our educational institutions are giving? No, I don't think okay. so. Well, I think they do their best, but they've all got limited time frames and there's a huge demand on you know, what subjects are going to be taught. And when I think about when I trained, we had probably 40 hours a week face-to-face. -face. And mm. then when I first taught in university at um, Monash, you know, we might have had 20 hours face-to-face. -face. Now it's probably 12. <laughs> so, and I presume TAFEs face the same issues. So yeah. the reality is you can't cover things in as much depth as you yeah. can. You have to, yeah. have to do some of that high level conceptual thinking which is good I think it's important but often the practical stuff falls off. It's off. With um, say the diploma do you happen to know how many um, language um, units there are? There'd or? be a couple maybe I think no. probably two. Which isn't much no, for something no. that you're describing and convincing so me is so yeah. foundational. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's interesting I don't think it's been a sexy topic language yep. development but I think it really is critical. So how can we make it sexy? Well I think we've got to do more work like this, these sort of forums and make sure it has an agenda in conferences etc. Yep. You know conferences have themes etc. And yep. maybe we should have a stronger theme or a thread in language. And so the upcoming ACA conference, do you know if there's anything? I don't know. I right. don't know. I am going, but I haven't looked at looked the whole at the program. program. Um, <laughs> I've looked know, at and, it, and, but I can't remember. You know, it's difficult because, yeah. I, I'm, you know, the other area that I'm so passionate about is ethics, and so I always want to see an ethics strand, <laughs> and I guess someone else wants to and see that strand. And, and, and a community-based <laughs> strand. And a social justice strand. Yeah. But I think... Given what we know about language development and the fact that there's a lot of research people mightn't have heard of, yep. and a lot of positive things that we can do as educators, and particularly working with families as well, yep. I think we do probably need a bit more emphasis. That's one of the things where Victoria seems to be really clear about the need for early childhood educators or the early childhood education system to be working with families yes. in a way that I don't think yes. necessarily I've seen in yes. other states and territories. Tell I, me about that. I think it's interesting. We've got this community family engagement thread coming through this conference very strongly and I've certainly been a supporter of that. In fact, I run a leadership, co-facilitate a leadership course for the southern region called Community and Family Engagement. We've been doing that since 2011. So that was an early commitment by the department that this was really important, that you have to work with family and community to achieve the outcomes you want. Yep. I think it is probably stronger here than anywhere else. Um, so we're talking not just parent participation or involvement, that's a separate matter. This is engagement, this is sharing the vision, sharing the goals, working together, um, feeling like we're both experts in the child's yep. life yep. from different 
coming from different places. I was speaking to someone about this recently and how um, sometimes uh, services don't feel like like they give lip service yes. to the idea of the Parent. the family as the first educator etc mm-hmm. but it's often yeah, often not stay away yes. <laughs> yeah. i think there's be, uh, i did some work in my phd that looked at that and um it wasn't looking at that particular but it came out in the data that young graduates said to me we felt quite confident in the pedagogy we felt the university had prepared us well for that but the one area we felt less prepared and more nervous about was working with families Mm. and I think they're often young graduates and parents a bit older and um I think it's one I of those... I see the, uh, a, a big changes in educators yeah. when they become parents themselves. Yes, it's like, that's true oh, now, now I, I get, get it. it. Now I get it. Now I get it. And so I think it is a challenging thing and I think it's one of those things we probably need to do more work post-service, post-training, yep. post-initial training. With the wonderful professional development money that we don't have. Well, we get it, get more here probably. Yeah. We have had some nationally, which is now gone. But I think um, that, yeah, if you really... Once, once if, there's a few sort of key things that when people get it, they teach differently. And one is parent understanding parents as the first educator, as experts in their children, sorry, as experts in their children. The other is the image of the child. Yep. When you get a different image of the child in your head as a competent, capable, thinking person with rights, I think you teach differently. There's a few sort of trigger things for me that make a difference. And I've seen that in when I've done um, PD that's been over time with groups of people and we've focused on those kind of things people teach differently do are you noticing a difference in the graduates that are coming out of our education systems now as opposed to you know say 10 years ago 20 years ago um i i can't say i've noticed a huge difference i think each cohort will bring strengths um I think overall there is a risk in universities, um, that's the sector I know best, uh, of courses can be hijacked to particular ideologies and I think that's risky for graduates. It doesn't serve graduates well if they've only looked at the world through one lens or one perspective. Um, They're going out into a world where there'll be multiple perspectives, people with different quals, backgrounds, experience and training and families. Um, you need to have multiple perspectives. Mm. Um, it's why the frameworks are based on multiple perspectives, not one perspective. So I think all universities are suffering from the lack of face-to-face contact time. Yeah. Um, practicum's always an issue. Get, make sure they get out into the services and have good pracs, quality pracs. Um, I think we have been one able to maintain that. One of the things that's that. concerning me about practicums is the ability of our teachers to afford to go on a practicum especially you know like what i think it's built on a system where a young woman is coming generally it is a young woman is coming into the system as a young person and um you know having time to do that practicum because they're still staying with parents etc but i think the reality is a lot of our teachers are coming from the diploma route 
and yeah. have already been working for a number of years may well have left home and suddenly they have to find mm. the time to yeah. to go without income. Yeah. Uh, Victoria has provided funding to support people training, upgrading from a diploma. Oh, of course it has. <laughs> it has, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And we should continue to do that because they make really good teachers. Yeah. They've been in the system. They know how it works. Um, they've had the practical... Um, training that TAFE has given them yeah. and then they suddenly... And they're committed And to they're do committed it. and then yeah. they get this thing, I need a degree. And this is a new... This has only happened since we've had the NQS. And yeah. NQF, yeah. Um, and it, it suddenly it was like a light bulb. You know, I deserve to have that qualification. Yeah, I, I kind I've, of, got the, I've got the I've skills. I've got the skills and I yeah. really need that recognition. Yeah. Whereas it used to be, oh, it's not for me, it's not for me, I couldn't do it. But now I think increasingly they say, see it that I, I you know, I deserve it. Yeah. And I deserve the, the um, status that comes with it and I'll be a better educator with it. So we should be encouraging that as much as we can. And I think we could be flexible around practice and we should look at flexible ways of delivering prac to those people. Yep. Um, clearly they do need to be assessed and most of them enjoy doing a prac. Um, but it's, as you say, it's negotiating when, yeah, you, when you're an adult and you've got to fund yourself and you've got a family as well, maybe. Yeah, it's a quite lot, difficult. Lot harder, but I think yeah. we can, I think good systems should be able to cope with that. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's probably about it. Probably I, I could talk to you for hours and hours about any number of topics. We could. But <laughs> yeah. you know, in fairness to our listeners, we should probably end it there. But thank you very much. Thanks. And, um, I'm glad that Thanks, you know, you're enjoying the conference as much as I am. Because Thanks, I think Lisa. It's very good. Ciao. So that's it for this week. Thanks to Simon, Jose and Anne for taking the time on a packed and excited day to speak with Lisa. We'll be back with another episode of interviews from the Realising the Potential conference next week. Speaking of conferences, I'd like to quickly remind everyone about two other upcoming events that the Early Education Show has somehow wrangled invitations to. In July, all three of us will be at the 14th Social Justice and Early Childhood Conference recording our first ever live episode. The conference is on Saturday, 28th of July. And finally, in October, all three of us will be boarding planes up to Darwin for the Little People Big Dreams Conference, and that will be on Saturday, 13th of October. If you're attending either of those events, come and say hi. Until next week, goodbye. You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.